Hello, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family. I'm Eric Rieger, joined by this guy, Dr. Kenneth Brown. Ken, who do we have with us today? Well, we have a wonderful person joining us and really appreciate him carving out the time because he is a super busy practicing physician. We have Dr. John Littell. Dr. Littell is a board-certified family physician. He served in the U.S. Army for over seven years, then with the National Health Services Corporation. He is also an esteemed author, and he wrote the book, The Hidden Truth, A Physician's Advice to Women and All Who Care for Them. We're excited to have Dr. Littell on because the one thing that he's been embodying through the, well, his whole career, I can't even say the last several years, his whole career is ultimately do no harm and help people. And unfortunately, he's been scrutinized uh, just recently, especially by the American Board of Family Practice, for uh, possibly considering some of the things he is doing as misinformation. And I just want to talk to you about how you treat people, because everything that I've seen you on, everything is just about helping people. That's it. That's your message. And do the right thing. And the one thing I want to say is we need to have more of this. You are passionate about your craft. You were called to be a doctor. You have uh, stayed steadfast to this and you have always made sure that you were doing the right things for your patients, regardless of any other agenda that could be going on. And that's what I want to talk about today. So thank you so much for coming on the Get Check Project, Dr. Littell. Yeah, thank you. It's an honor. Uh, it's uh, my patients understand that I do these things uh, in between patients or whenever I can, because frankly, uh, I, my hope is that somewhere in your listening audience, there's some young man or woman that's uh, considering becoming a family doctor or a physician, right, or a PA or nurse practitioner. And, and I, I just have to encourage them all to never, ever compromise their values when they get into the healthcare field. You know, my very first one of my first textbooks behind me on physical diagnosis at George Washington University, even back then in 1984, it said, you know, moral judgments have no place in the exam room. I mean, that was what I was being taught in 1984, that you could not as a principal physician ever exercise. And it was ironic for me or challenging for me. I'd already been in seminary for a year coming into medical school. I was told I was told by the dean at George Washington University, which is the only allopathic school, the only MD school I got an interview to and I got accepted and became the rest is history. He said he was he found my resume interesting because I'd spent that year in a in a Catholic seminary in Long Island after Cornell and Columbia and all that stuff. But otherwise, I never would have gotten in. But then I go to medical school and I found out that your values need to be put on the back burner. And you can't be a, 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 a and this is 40 almost 40 years ago, this guys, I mean, it's uh, it's incredible that 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 is a that's exactly what has happened. And so as you see what happened to me recently as being a misinformer, it's really just some sharing the, the, my convictions with my patients that gets me into trouble and, and makes the American Board of Family Medicine feel uh, you know, they're motivated to say we don't need doctors like you, Dr. Littell, in our in our specialty field of family medicine. And that's, I guess, one reason we're having this chat today. Let, uh, I want to just throw this out to you really quick. I have um, a friend that I trained with that uh, practiced. He's a gastroenterologist and practiced in Kissimmee, Florida. I said, hey, I just texted him and I said, hey, do you happen to know Dr. John Littell? His response was, yes, I love him. He's an incredible doctor. Why do you ask? And then I said, well, he's coming on our podcast. So you at least have a reputation in the community of being a very, very good doctor, which to me is the biggest honor that another physician can actually say about another doctor. So 
Thank you. It, it moves me to tears when that's been said a couple of times about me, that you're the doctor's doctor. And, you know, it is an honor to take care of. But for, for one thing, you know, we doctors rarely seek out medical attention, unfortunately, often too little too late by the time we see a doctor. But I, I, I do love the vocation of medicine and especially family medicine. I feel like family medicine was created for me and not, and not me for it. You know, it, it was it's just really what it didn't come into existence until the early 70s as a specialty. Before that, you had GPs. A lot of folks out there don't understand the importance of board certification. I know you two do, but, you know, you cannot be a non-board certified physician in America and have a independent practice of any spe any medical specialty. Uh, and so I have to explain that to them. You know, the GPs are gone <laughs> a long time ago. We had to go for that extra three years of training, uh, which you you both would agree is great. I mean, the extra training. I, I always tell people I'm like triply board certified because I got a chance to do even more than that. I did my board certification through the Army at Fort Lewis, Washington. And then they sent me over to uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia, to teach uh, medical school students and residents for four more years. And then they deployed me to other places around the world where I ran hospitals. But the, the cumulative experience of all that, every morning report, you know, you have those morning report, morning rounds, you have an afternoon lecture, you have an after an evening. And so I was just gobbling up information for, for many, many years. I still do. You never stop learning. But um, it's that continuous learning that makes somebody that allows us to be board certified, as you guys know. Now, of course, in recent years, it's become continuous propaganda, uh, but you still have to punch the buttons and get that board certification status in order to take care of hospital patients, in order to take care of, uh, uh, in order to get paid by most insurance companies, and in order to teach medical students, which I love doing, you have to have that board certification. If they get rid of that, as they, they've attempted to do with me, I can't teach the medical students. I have you know two here right now that I, and, and, and they're the ones who are picking up on on how I practice and, and hopefully incorporating in there. Sure. Uh, I'm just going to tell them this. Yeah. Well, so do, do this if you don't mind. Um, take us back. I mean, obviously you've got a good reputation. Ken's got a colleague that knew you by name instantly. It seems like everything was going just as, I shouldn't say as you planned, because as you said, you've been developing your practice, you're building your practice along with other families. You're getting ingrained in their lives and they're trusting you and, and you even said it yourself. You love you loved learning that you were a doctor's doctor. I mean, it's it's one of the highest praises that you can get. Moving forward to just a little over three years ago, the pandemic hits. Kind of take us through your journey of you continue you continuing to care for your patients, and then kind of bring us up to speed to where we are now. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing. It was not a. Um a radical departure from the way I've been practicing medicine um, for about 25 years now, probably my whole career, I've always questioned. And I mean, so the book you alluded to, The Hidden Truth, for example, the subtitle is Deception of Women's Healthcare. That book is, is the product of over 20 years of my own experience of going to medical meetings and hearing doctors lie about uh, vaccines like the, the Gardasil vaccine and these newer improved methods of destroying women's fertility, like the, uh, the eShore device. And I, I talked about that in my book, how this was crazy that this was ever allowed to be put inside of the fallopian tubes of women. Eventually it was recalled after 10 years and thousands of damaged women. Uh, but I always questioned. So COVID was really no different. You know, it came out, uh, you have this alpha variant and um, I'm having sick people and 
uh, I'm told by a couple of different independent sources that, you know, I need to look at hydroxychloroquine. This is very early on as an opportunity to take care of some of these folks. And I started prescribing it. And then lo and behold, there was a, a church group right here next door, a local church. They all got sick. And one of the, them was a nurse patient of mine. And she comes up to me and she says she took she had taken care of the first patient who died from COVID in our county. And I'm not sure about your town, but the first person that died from COVID in our county was on the front page of the newspaper in like whatever it was, February of 2020. It was now, okay, that's, that was what they wanted to get out there. Of course, the newspapers are all run by people who want to create that kind of panic. So she was with this man for 12 hours on her shift. She comes and sees me with fever, chills, body. She said, Dr. Littell, I think I need hydroxychloroquine. At the same time, I had done doing studies on it. So she was my first patient little over three years ago that I treated. She got better within 48 hours. Um, and there was another member. There are others in that church group who didn't. One ended up on a ventilator, but he wasn't my patient. I, I saw the difference. I saw the dramatic difference with hydroxychloroquine, with the alpha variant. Um, you know, I'm going to have to go back in my memory banks and figure out how I got pulled into the same group uh, with Peter McCullough and uh, Pierre Corey and all of these other COVID warrior docs. But we very early on started talking by Zoom just like this. And um, I was seeing such incredible success. Now, mind you, at this point in time, I'm the department chairperson for family medicine in the hospital. I'm on the medical executive committee. And every month they're having meetings discussing how they're going to create more beds more isolation beds for COVID patients. And I was seeing, well, and because I'm the only doctor in the community practically who still goes to the hospital and takes care of my own patients, I'm seeing firsthand what's happening to all these people that are being isolated. And that one of them, the one that really hit home for me the most was this 90 year old gentleman, Anthony, who would Italian American who had been, had a hip replacement, ended up in the rehab right down the block his daughter calls me and says, Dr. Littell, can you get hydroxychloroquine for my dad? He's got COVID, the whole nursing home, the whole floor, right? You heard it spreading like wildflower, wildfire. So I said, I can't treat in that nursing home. I don't have privileges. Try to get him. The only place at that point he could go was the hospital. By the time he got to the hospital, he'd been in the nursing home for seven days. He's, he's got full-blown COVID pneumonia. But that gentleman was sitting there on the COVID unit in isolation and I, and I knew 92 years of age, I knew he was gonna be gone very soon. He was, he was on BiPAP, very weak. I said, Anthony, would you like to see your daughter? Of course, yes. So I brought his daughter up to the hospital. And then I told the head nurse, I said, she's gonna come and she's gonna visit with her dad. She was the, the first and for the only person really for forever, for months to be able to go see her relative before he died, have that final conversation with Anthony. And then when he did die the next day, she came up with him as well. And, you know, for over a year, the hospital said the only way you can have a family member see any patient, this was probably for two years running, was if you pronounce them DNR in the chart. You had to make them that they were end of life care. You had to consult hospice. In other words, only when you'd thrown in the towel, given up all hope, were family members allowed to visit the patient. So I'm, I was operating in and out of these hospitals day in, day out. And and I, I got, you know, very upset, Not not enough to do what a lot of people might have done, but enough to say a few things. And, and eventually I got kicked off the medical exec committee. I got fined by one hospital, $500, suspended for two weeks because I allowed the family members to come in and pray with their dad who was before he was taken off the ventilator. Um, uh, you know, and, and it goes on and on. And then I had this summit on COVID 
in uh, November of uh, 2001. And that's when I brought together a lot of doctors to our- Wait, it's like 2021? 2021, I'm sorry, 2021, World Equestrian Center, sure, thank you. Uh, And so that was a big event. We had almost a thousand people there. We had, I don't know, a hundred thousand people watching and live stream. And and that was a seminal event, really, because it was the first time all these doctors had come together and spoken to a large group and then a larger beyond that. But wouldn't you know, it was shortly after that, the American Board of Family Medicine sent me the very first letter stating that I was a misinformer, that I was in danger of losing my board certification. Um, Fast forward to the second summit, which happened this past October here in the villages in Florida. Uh, And then it was like they'd had enough. What really triggered it was the big event in Sarasota, Florida, where I got a lot of publicity for speaking out at that hospital in Sarasota Memorial about the care of the inpatients. And they, they, you may have seen that video where they asked me to leave and I was escorted out by a few uh, uniformed personnel. And um, Well, hey, that, that uh, particular episode, Ken and I actually were talking about that beforehand. I mean, this is, this is a big deal. And I don't know that how many people outside of Florida or at least in our area have ever brought it up nor talked about it. So let's, let's talk about that event specifically. Before we jump into that, I just want to clarify one thing. Did you say that first summit event, um, you had a hundred thousand people that were live streaming? We had almost, uh, yeah, by the time it was finished being watched, I'm sorry, the second one, we had a hundred thousand live streaming. The first event over a hundred thousand people saw within the first 24 hours, it went out, it went out all over. Cause we had Malone, McCullough, Corey, wow, everybody. And you, you, it was taken down, of course, everything is on Google, but enough people had copied off the five and a half hours and put it out there that it was, it went crazy. And so, um, yeah, what, what the American Board of Family Medicine basically did is they went through every hour of every, not just those summits, but every talk I'd given to try to find, and I can go into more detail what they, what they did, but they, they really didn't, I think it really irked them that, um, that I got this publicity that I did not expect when, um, you know, the hosp- trying to address the care of the hospitalized COVID patients is impossible because most of them, the hospitals are very secretive, as you guys know, about how they're doing things. They have their board of trustees. They have their med executive committees, which is all doctors. But increasingly, the doctors are are really much on the payroll of the hospital. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to get people to do a critical analysis of all the things that happened, the things I shared with you about the isolation of these patients and the policies, the denial of treatment. So the only exception is a hospital like Sarasota Memorial, which is about three hours south of me here, and they're a public hospital. They're, they have a public charter. So they got enough board members elected into their board of trustees to be able to have an open inquiry, a town hall meeting essentially on the care of COVID, the patients who were denied ivermectin, the patients who were receiving remdesivir, even though the World Health Organization and others had already said this is not a good drug um, and it would kill people. So this meeting was coming up and then all of a sudden I I said, I better go. People were asking me to go. I I looked at my schedule. I took a whole half day and rearranged it so I could drive down there with my wife and and it turned out to be about a two and a half minute testimony that I gave. And um, what happened is at the end of the meeting, the board members, one board member spoke up and she was the closest to where I was sitting. 
and she was incredibly supportive. She was one of the ones that wanted me. She had actually come to the COVID summit up here in Ocala. And now she's on the board of a hospital where we're addressing the killing of COVID patients during COVID. So she spoke up on behalf of the, of, of the patients and the doctors. I had to leave to get back to Ocala. So I got out of my seat, auditorium style seating. And I kind of walked over to her to just pat her on the shoulder. And I thanked her for her comments. I said, this is terrific. I hope I could say more, but I have to head back. That triggered uh, the security person, the police officer, full, full, tapped me on the shoulder saying, sir, you're going to have to leave. And I thought that meant leave where I was, but it turned out that there were another uh, uh, non-uniformed bodyguard guy came down, get your stuff, get out of here. They put, they walked me out of that room. And then another taller, more intimidating guy said, just keep walking. So that was my, I call it the, the, my march through through the hospitals. It was very intimidating. I said, what's going on? I'm a doctor with my white coat and everything. And, um, by the time I got to the exit, they said, you need to get your keys and get out, get your car and get out of here, get off the property of the hospital. Well, I didn't have my car keys. My wife had them. So they said, well, get onto the sidewalk because the reporter at that time had caught up to me. He said, You're, you can't be on hospital premises. So they marched us off to the sidewalk. And then that ended up being, that's where Chris Nelson, who's a young, enthusiastic reporter down here, just took my story. He said, Dr. Littell, what in God's name just happened here? And I frankly didn't know except to say that um, clearly the hospital did not want me to be addressing what I addressed. And um, so, yeah, so that got a lot of publicity. About five and a half million people saw that video around the world and put me in a situation where, as people have said, Dr. Littell, because of your work with the hospital patients, you kind of need to take the lead on this stuff. But you can imagine as you're in the healthcare field, it's very hard. I mean, I've never been busier in my clinical practice and so I started, I got involved with a Twitter. Um, but so I have a, a, you can catch me on Twitter. I don't do anything much on there. I just let people know what's going on in my world, in my neck of the woods. But I do tweet out occasionally. But most importantly, American Board of Family Medicine sends me a letter. What is it? March 17th, right around St. Patrick's Day. So less than two months ago. And they say you're officially decertified as a family physician as of this letter. You know, you're no longer board certified after 33 years. Um, that ended up getting a lot of publicity with good reason. And so now we're fighting a legal battle with the American Board of Family Medicine because this is just not something that should be happening to doctors. Well, the first time I saw that video, um, I counted five large security guards escorting you out. And so um, I was just like, wow, this guy must be like special forces or something. Maybe he's like a Mossad assassin, you know, that takes five <laughs> huge dudes that are scared. He's going <laughs> to... So when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, there's no way. You go, okay, my hospital, if you've got a code green, I don't know if you're familiar, if you guys have the same codes, but that's like you've got a, somebody is being aggressive and needs to be taken down. Code green goes to the, to the cops and everything. You might get a cop that'll stroll by. Now at a hospital board meeting, you don't have cops standing by. There was five people standing by waiting to do something. What they were waiting on, who knows what. But well, there's was, one of the we we have our. I won't get into it, but there are. There, this was a um, this was already arranged. There, my my wife later said there was a person right next to her that was clearly another on you know bodyguard that was waiting for something to happen. I mean, people, you know, these are interesting times, and these people on the other side, the board members, truly felt I think that they were in danger of physical harm. The next board meeting I went to, which is the last one I'm going to go to, they had, obviously you can imagine all the changes. They put up dividers between the auditorium 
and the, and the board members, and they had even more security guards because, God forbid, another Dr. Littell shows up. <laughs> anyway, but it was pretty intimidating. And actually, at the time, I was a little bit shook up. I'm, I can laugh about it now. Were any of the other board members on board with the one that approached you to thank you for coming down, or was she kind of— There, there were three supportive board members, which is really what it took to get us there uh, in the first place. They, uh, they needed to have, like, a vote, and I don't know how that all worked out, but to be able to have the meeting on this topic of the of the treatment. But but this one woman was clearly—I uh, think her name is Bridget. She she stood out of, over and above the others and, and her— awareness and interesting enough her husband's a surgeon on staff at that hospital so it's not like she's just some you know radical kook she's seen her husband has seen what's happened to to other doctors in the hospital and the, and the thing that's been mentioned many times is how many good doctors have been silenced um, or been told they better keep their mouth shut or they will no longer be working with that particular ICU group or that emergency room group or you know it, it, because they have exclusive contracts with the hospitals as you guys know. So I'm, I'm as independent as it gets. I mean, my white coat now has my name on it. We got all these free white coats from the hospitals. They're, they're in my closet somewhere. I used to, I, you, know, you know, right. I made the mistake of wearing one once on a, and I got interviewed and the, they, I got a call from the hospital saying, you don't represent us. Don't ever wear that coat again. You know, Oh wow. Or even, I have my, a... even my ID cards here. I got to make sure they're gone. <laughs> I have a question for you. So first of all, kudos to you to having your outpatient practice and doing it old school and rounding on your inpatients because you know Mrs. Johnson, you know where she's, she gets admitted. So, you know, that's, that's lost. My hospital is strictly hospitalists. They're completely employed. But I'm just curious what you went through when you're the outside family practice doctor coming in, rounding on your patients, rounding in the ICU, using what would be considered atypical treatments, and your patients are living and others are dying. How were the how were the actual physicians interacting with you during your rounds? No, the dynamics were tense, really tense. And and it was really bad, especially as a family doctor walking into an ICU with a bunch of intensivists there looking at me. The only time I got sympathy was later, much later in the game, with one ICU doc who himself never got early treatment, ended up on ECMO and and uh, almost died. I mean, heart-lung trans uh, bypass, which was a very aggressive remedy that they had to use for only a few people got the benefit of that. But when he came back to work, he wasn't wearing a mask, and he looked at me, and he just kind of gently nodded. He got the message. He had been through. He'd been almost dead mm -hmm. from COVID, but had never had the benefit of the treatment that I was giving but to get, nobody would give me any, uh, well, I mean, I get, I'd have nurses and respiratory therapists oh, come up to me often and say, and whisper to me in the hallway, say, thank you for coming here. You know, thank you. And uh, you, can you, is, is there any way I can help you get ivermectin into this patient? Because, but we'd have to whisper about it, obviously. This is all, this was surreptitious, as it were. But, but no, I mean, the treatment, the, the silent treatment from the doctors, the, the, the looks was, was hard, especially with people that were friends of mine, had been friends of mine. And I'm sure you went through some of this too in the medical community. These are colleagues that we had great conversations with. All of a sudden, once COVID happened, it was like the door was shut to any conversation. Um, I even brought it up as part of the medical executive committee meeting at that time, meeting only on Zoom. And we did for like two years, um, which was nonsense. But in any event, I said, guys, we're, we're having all these talks about shutting down more and more of the hospital. Why don't we talk about keeping people out of the hospital? Why, do you want to know what I'm doing? I mean, I'm the only guy on this medical executive committee who's seeing people in the office who are sick. By the way, I never shut my office down, right? We just brought them in and took care of them like any other 
stay in the office. Um, and then and then I'm keeping him out. And then the ones who came into the office, into the hospital, which I had a, I had maybe six to 10 that had to be hospitalized for a variety of reasons. Um, but I, I said, why don't we have that conversation? Because, you know, guys, ivermectin, especially when Delta started hitting, really was incredibly helpful in addition to hydroxychloroquine and the whole cocktail that you guys are, I'm sure, have discussed, Dr. McCullough's cocktail. Um, well, the first comment from the chief of staff was, Dr. Littell, that's very good advertising for your practice, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Mm. Well, you know, that was the one time I lost my temper. <laughs> one of tw- Twice I lost my temper. That was one of them. I, I hung up the phone on him. I said, you guys can have keep your heads in the sand if you want, but I'm done with you all. And I just slammed the phone. Of course, then they, then they had a meeting about me. They were going to kick me out. And, and that was an interesting conversation that if I, if I had learned how to make a tape on my phone, I would have done it. But I had my wife listening in. It was the chief medical officer, the chief of staff, and the chief executive officer of that hospital discussing kicking me off of the uh, committee and depart- as a department chairperson. And, um, oh, there was one other impartial observer listening, the radiologist. That's right. And so the chief executive officer says to me on that phone call, Dr. Littell, you know, we accept we expect our medical staff to be lockstep with us when it comes to hospital policy. And it's clearly that you're not. Well, you know, you don't have to even respond to that, do you? Oh. But then the, doc, the the radiologist, who's a third generation Ocala native, said, to, said, hey, you know, the CEO, it sounds an awful lot to me like you're trying to tell Dr. Littell how to practice medicine. And uh, I've always thanked him to this day. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't kick me off at that point. They kicked me off a few months later, but at that point, they didn't kick me off. So there you go. It's amazing being on medical executive committees, guys. I mean, if, if either of you had had the privilege of that, I mean, this is where they, you really hear about the bad behavior of doctors, the complaints about the hospital at a level that you'll never hear in the doctor's lounge. And so yeah. they clearly did not want me on the MEC anymore. Wow. So did you happen to have any charted data just that was being able to be displayed and shared? I mean, obviously people saw the success, but were you ever able to put a comparison of your hard? What, what did that look like? Well, what we had, that's where the 3000 patients treated number came from. We, uh-huh. we actually, when I was one of my more ambitious medical students, I put him to the task of just going into my billing hardware or software rather. And just, I said, pull up all the COVID diagnoses that we've treated in the office hospital. And then that we were starting to do telehealth more because we had to, and we had calls from all over creation. And then we followed up and the good news is that all that ends up in the data bank. And that's where we first got the the numbers that we had 3000 patients treated in one way, shape or form. And the hospitalizations at that point were less than 10. And the mortality was, I think we had six deaths and each one of those, and I can see their faces and I know their names, were people that I lost some control over in the hospital setting. Mm. Obviously, I couldn't continue with ivermectin in any of them. uh, And it was and I couldn't actually manage, you know, in the ICU setting. I had to go with some of the ICU recommendations. But there were a couple in particular that were impressive. The one patient whose wife refused to ever leave his side, even though there were no visitors allowed. And she was going to put up and she's a prominent businesswoman in town here. And her husband survived because she was sneaking him ivermectin. All right. He came off. He was he was in the hospital for a good two months. He couldn't even walk for a period of time. Now he's coming to my office and and uh, singing my praises. And every time he comes in, I say, sing your wife's praises, because that's who kept you alive. That and the grace of God. 
you know, I just, I just allowed it to happen. I told, and again, there were nurses, respiratory therapists who were sympathetic to them, you know, because that, that, that had to happen. So this is, we have a large body of supporters within the healthcare system that simply can't speak out. But, you know, given the right leadership, you know, I believe we could transform our healthcare system and actually have hospitals. Um, you know, I don't think it's going to be, legislation is not going to be enough. We, the governor just this morning signed legislation in Florida on medical freedom and protecting patients and doctors of positions of conscience. But I said to them, the people in charge, is it's not going to be enough. I mean, legislation is not going to get these hospitals to stop oppressing the doctors, however they will. Um, we need people to step up to the plate and really buck the system more. And, and um, I'm not sure what it's going to take up, but I'm, I'm trying my best. Who did, did any of the hospital executive committee people, did any of the family practice board people see the data that you had collected? Oh, they, they, they did. They knew, well, they knew the most important data they, that, no, they didn't see the actual 3000 with the numbers unless they read about it. I think, I forget who put it out there. Um, oh, there was an NBC report that came out on me that I treated and that, that was local. It was in Orlando, but it got a lot of publicity. Um, a reporter actually came to my office to discuss my data and what had happened. And she used patients of mine that had been kept out of the hospital. Um, but that was just it. We had the mayor of our town calling me on a Friday night. He's not my patient. I can say this because he already, this is a matter of public record. He mentioned and thanked me at the city council calling me on a Friday night. He had the chief of police, the head of the fire department. He's hypoxic. And they said, you know, you need to go to the hospital. So he called me, not even being my patient, never had met him. But I said, okay, we'll get you in. And he was the only patient that ever got the full dose of ivermectin while he was an inpatient. Hmm. We, you know, see, all the hospitals have ivermectin in their formularies. They wouldn't give it is what the problem was. And so he got it, the full dose that he needed. He was home in about two to three days, duck hunting in a week. You know, he's older than me. And, um, but, but people in town got wind of that. Next thing you know, I had doctors calling me. You know, from the emergency room, OBD, OB doctors, surgeons, uh, I, my mom's sick, I'm sick, you know, my dad's sick up in Chicago. I mean, I can't, to be honest with you guys, it's still just a blur for me because this was 24-7. It was like, I tell people it was, it was I, being deployed in the Army was was a piece of cake compared to what I dealt with with the Delta variant in, in um, for COVID. Wow. We had the pleasure of having Dr. Joe Verone on. I, I think you've probably met him before. He's part of the, the, the whole group of people, but he tells such a similar story being the only critical care doctor in the very beginning and just working 760 days in a row. Yeah. Just, 715 or 716 out, out in Houston. And they, Houston declared uh, uh, Dr. Joe Verone day yeah. for his diligence and his determination to stick with it. And much like, what I think that you've described as your experience, he and one other physician at that hospital found themselves to be the only two that continued to work as normal. And they basically absorbed everyone else's patients. Yeah, it was a hard time. I, 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 I guess if I'd known that he was doing that work at that time, but he was busy enough. I, I told people the only other doctor that I knew at that time was that was sympathetic to our plight was Dr. Corey taking care of critical care patients. So I would call him with my more challenging patients to say, what can we throw at him now? What can we, the, the six or seven that were that didn't make it ultimately, um, we, we tried everything. But 
But it was, you know, Delta, the Delta variant, and uh, and that was Dr. Brown's experience when it first hit us. Not most of us, including McCall and I, many conversations. You know, what is happening here? We just worked with Alpha. Now it's not working with Delta. Mm. That's those deaths that we had were because we didn't get. We had to double the doses of ivermectin. We had to do a lot of different things, as I'm sure you know. So, so we, but, but this is the difference. We had these conversations, and we figured out what worked. But the 99% of the healthcare system never allowed anyone to have the conversation. And so, you know, I just looked at my phone yesterday. I looked. If you look under CDC, COVID deaths, it, they right now they say it, um, we're at 1.16 million COVID deaths total 1.16 million COVID deaths. But I, I'll tell you, there's a side story to that. Those are not all COVID deaths. I, I like to tell people, let's say at that best, 50% of those are COVID deaths. And instead of calling them COVID deaths, we call them COVID homicides. Mm. Um, and, and then the other 50% are people, and I know several cases of in my own patients, where they test swab them for COVID before they died as a complication of other illnesses, accidents, heart, whatever. So, and if they were listed as a COVID death, as you, I'm sure, have covered, the hospital benefited from that. So, you know, you, you, but it's it's true. We had these preventable COVID deaths, and then we have all the ones that are just sham COVID deaths. That's, you brought it up, but it was uh, something that I actually believe, I think you and Drew Pinsky discussed on his show, that it has been implied that any hospital admission that had COVID on it, there was immediately a $10,000 and there was a $40,000 incentive, if or not incentive, but basically to compensate for the trouble that if they died of COVID. So there was actual hard numbers that have been thrown around. And I don't, I'm not a hospital executive that would look at that, but it's certainly been implied by a lot of people that that's actually what was happening. And the thought would be, well, there, this is, you know, if I'm thinking the other side, if I'm being altruistic about it, it's like, well, if our hospitals are burdened with this and they can't run outpatient centers, they'll collapse. So we will incentivize to help them take care of the burden. But then the flip side happens. It's swabbing somebody who's um, has something completely true, true and unrelated. It's, uh, you know, the stage four cancer, pancreatic cancer, and they're swabbing the person right before they die. And then they list COVID. So well, that, yeah. And that's how I found out about the financial incentive was when my that, that nurse I talked about, she, my very first patient, working at that hospital, also across the street. I'm pretty much center located here. So she she calls me. She's sick. They not they have a limited number of test kits. It's the very early stages, very limited number. I, I she they wouldn't test her for COVID. She wanted to know. She assumed she had it, but she wanted to make sure. Meanwhile, my at the same time, I have a patient who had just had open heart surgery, who was failing. He didn't have a good outcome. And he's actively dying in the ICU and they swabbed him for COVID, right? So, and, and so I'm in the doctor's lounge the very next day with the, the same, almost same group, CEO, CMO, chief medical officer, who's the doctor who, who represents the hospital. And then of all people, the young C chief financial officer, who I didn't know, but I didn't realize that's who he was. So I asked him the question. I said, what is going on here? Why are you swabbing people who have like heart surgery when you're not swabbing your employees? I, and I said, I said, is there some sort of a financial arrangement with testing positive for COVID? And the CEO and the CMO said, well, we haven't heard anything about that. We're not really aware of that. But then the young guy in the background who's new, chief financial officer, says, oh, yeah, yeah, we get paid. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine the CEO and CMO? Yeah. 
Oh no, no, y'all missed it. Yeah, we're we're getting paid for that. <laughs> that is great. It's a great story. He didn't stick around very long. I don't know where he went. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Well, hey, you uh, you being in Florida, and Florida makes lots of headlines right now, especially for an environment that is currently promoted as empowering physicians, people to have choice, and with the current governor, and in even, even more put, I think there's only six or seven states that have a Surgeon General, but Florida has one, uh, Joseph uh, Latipo. He came to your aid. And basically championed your position, your ability to practice as a physician, practice medicine as a physician, between and you know keep that relationship between you and your patients altruistic, making the best decisions that you and your patients come to together. In that kind of environment, and with Doctor, oh, I'm sorry, with uh, Governor DeSantis, you said this morning signing a new bill. What is it that keeps some of these hospital systems in a state like that to run in opposition? Well, it's all politics, guys. It's total politics. It's really, I'm trying to keep the forces united here in Florida, as I'm sure you are in Texas. Um, But people don't, people are angry with the governor for not going far enough. Because, for example, you have all the COVID deaths, you have the cover-ups with the hospitals and the remdesivir, and you still had immunity being granted through the state to the hospitals, which he did say would sunset in June next month. Um, But for that critical period of time, we were fighting over a year ago to make the hospitals liable for these protocols and denying patients treatments, and we didn't get that support in Tallahassee. So, so uh, that you know, and then you, you got to look at it from a political issue. You know, I, I'm I was don't even get into the fact that I wasn't even asked to be there at the signing of this bill this this morning, which I thought was kind of bizarre. But um, no one really wants me to speak. In Tallahassee, I really think because I've seen too much, and and the uh, the hospitals got away with with um, with horrendous stuff. And um, the go- no governor, no one can run for political office and turn and and really tick off all the hospitals in the state. I mean, we had Governor Scott, who who was a product of the hospital system, right? His family owned HCA, the Hospital Corporation of America, or founded it. So you've got that. And then I'm not saying that, I mean, Governor Sanders is the best thing we have had, and he is an amazing person, but you can't, in politics, I had that conversation with someone sitting right here today in this chair, that's a local state legislator, does he, he stop by? And, and he was apologizing for the behavior of some of the people that worked in his campaign. He said, I didn't approve that, but that's what I had to do. The same thing in politics. So, I mean, the hospitals are getting away with things that Governor D can't, uh, control the hospital's behavior. So what we have to do instead, and what he has done instead, and what Joe Latipo has done instead, because look at him, Joe Latipo oversees all the departments of health. They're still giving COVID vaccines left and right in the state of Florida at the departments of health, every health department. He knows they're not good, but he can't tell every health department in the state of Florida to stop giving the COVID shots. Um, I mean, it'd be like there'd be an uprising or some sort, I guess. So I, I don't know really how to explain other, other than to say that there's there's a lot of politics involved and um but i i'm, I'm never going to be a big i'm never going to criticize governor santos because he went out on a limb he actually called me uh he called me right here in this office about two and a half years ago and asked my advice about the masks i've never had a conversation with him like in person for any length of time but he called me because he knew about my video i put out that says it's called taking the mask off of COVID 19 it was 
from almost three years ago. And I mentioned back then the futility of the wearing the masks and uh, he liked it. So he called me and I think that that was helpful for him to make the decision for the state. So anyway, he was the first to come out and talk about the vaccine. He and Joe Latipo about the children. So, but with the hospitals, they're a different beast, guys. I mean, you know how much of the healthcare dollar goes to hospitals as opposed to us little docs, right? I mean, we're insignificant in the healthcare system when it comes to the power plays that are happening. Well, um, kind of bring us up to date then with what's also rather recent, and that's been your ongoing battle. And I think that it's in an, an appellate stage, if that's what you want to call it, of the American Board of uh, Family Medicines or the ABFM. Just I'll let you. I'm kind of curious how they first notified you that you were on their watch list and then now take us through where we are today. Well, it was a, it was a seven page letter, the first letter, the first time um, telling me that I was accused, accusing me of all sorts of misinformation. I've got a total of three attorneys that I turn to for advice right now. But one that you may have heard of is Dr. Is, is Jeff Childers up in Gainesville. Good friend and great attorney. So he responded point by point to that first letter and said, listen, you guys can't accuse somebody of this, this, you know, the same making a statement without you, American Board of Family Medicine, have to show your proof of what your position is, that the vaccines are 100% safe and effective, right? So that was a good strategy. Um, and then it kind of percolated for a while. Nothing, we had nothing from last summer, from June, until right after the Sarasota thing in, in uh, March. And um, all of a sudden this letter shows up saying, with the seven page letter, again, accusing me of being a misinformer. The one thing that really gets my goat the most, I mean, yeah, sure, there's, they, they say, doctor would tell you, you're not allowed to say that the vaccines damage children. You're not allowed to say that um, you know, anything bad about the vaccines, but, or that they're a product of genetic engineering. That was an interesting one. I'm not allowed to say they're a product of genetic engineering. Um, now, mind you, with this letter, just so you know, a group of almost 200 doctors, everyone you've heard of, signed a fantastic rebuttal to the American Board of Famous, and that was drafted point by point, kind of just says, ABFM, you are wrong. You are wrong. You are wrong from this perspective. But the other one that they pointed out to me was a statement I had made almost two and a half years ago at a meeting when I compared our current healthcare system to what took place in Nazi Germany. You know, and I said that, this is again, remember, I, I said this two and a half years ago, even before that conversation that I described earlier with the CEO. And I said that we are, our physicians are increasingly becoming lockstep with the CDC, the FDA, the hospitals, the insurance companies. And when that happens, we will be no different than Nazi Germany. Well, the American Board of Family Medicine, right at the top says unprofessional conduct. For me to mention that, I'm guilty of unprofessional conduct. Of course, you heard the CEO saying we expect our doctors to be lockstep with us. So that was after I made that comment. So, um, so all of this happens. We 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 drafted the appeal letter. We had to appeal because what had happened was that that decertification was immediate. All of a sudden, I'm getting calls from the hospitals. You can't take care of patients. You can't teach medical students. Whoa, back off! I said, we're appealing today. It's in the mail overnight. FedEx. They get the appeal. Conditional reinstatement of board certification pending the outcome of the professionalism committee. So there's a committee of of the people looking at my professionalism professionalism. That'll take place apparently I just found out last week on June 21st or 22nd. It's at that time that my fate as a board certified family physician will will be determined. Now, you think we're going to be sitting back on the defense and waiting for that? 
well, hell no, you know, like don't mess with Texas. You know, I'm like, at this point, I finally got enough people saying to me, John, why are you letting them treat you this way? You know, what, why would you allow them to even say you're not, you need to go on the offense. Everything they've done has been criminal. So I've got a great lawyer out of Texas, Andy Schlafly, who's the legal counsel for American Academy of Physicians and Surgeons, the anti-AMA, the, the great group I know you guys have heard of or participated in. And so we've already, we are initiating legal action, not just myself. You'll get a load of this. Another young lady, Dr. Very good friend of mine, Casey Del Coco in Indianapolis, who has also got the same letter. She's decertified. Del Coco, D-E-L-C-O-C-O. She's now, she's, a, she's letting me say her name in public because we have this legal case. She's really ticked off. They kicked her. She was delivering babies. Her hospital kicked her out of the hospital because she wouldn't get vaxxed, did not allow her to deliver the babies, the moms that she was committed to. She has a story to tell, and it's wow. going to be heard. I mean, as a woman doctor, solo practice, to be treated the way she's been treated. She testified before the Indiana State Legislature, and it's because of her testimony about the danger of the vaccine that she was decertified by ABFM. Casey, very articulate. She's a Notre Dame grad, and she's an amazing woman. Um, and then you have a, a little secret out there, I think in West Texas somewhere, named Dr. John Day, who's not been very public, but he also received a letter that he was decertified. Now, here's the good news. You got Indiana, you got Florida, and you got Texas. Which of those states you think has a court that we want to go to with our case right now? And it's the one that allowed, you know, a lot of good things to happen recently, and that's your guys in Texas. So, so I, we just look for some good things to come down the road with a, with a, the, that we are basically going on the offensive against the American Board of Family Medicine. And it's probably going to be a, a you know, it's going to be a class action or whatever you call it, but. This is happening very soon. Wow. Amazing. Well, Dr. John Littell, I really appreciate you taking the time to share this much of your story with everyone. Um, I think it's uh, it's commendable that in the face of lots of threats, lots of pushback, that it's clear to me, at least, that it looks like you were performing your decision or making your decisions based on your patient's best interests. And um, I... I mean, I'm kind of blown away that you're having to do this in this day and time, but I, but thank goodness. Yeah, I thought we were through all this. I thought I thought that you know I thought that happened to Paul Merrick early on, and then everyone else, you know, is crazy. Yeah, Paul's one of my heroes, and his passion. I, I, I was able to really have a good visit with him in Atlanta, and I never got a bigger hug from any doctor than I got from him. I we both bonded over what we've been through, and. Um, yeah, it's kind of crazy. We love what we do as doctors, and it's amazing that people would think to act this way to prevent us from taking care of the patients. You know, I did share just real quick the movie Hacksaw Ridge uh, in Atlanta, you know, uh, which is that conscientious objector that, be, inter, I, ironically enough, Seventh-day Adventist, because <laughs> that hospital system's giving me a lot of trouble. But, but anyway, you know, that scene where he's going up that cliff and going over into enemy fire to, to save the wounded and bring him back down. They kept saying, don't go up there. You're going to get yourself killed. Oh, that's yeah. The conscience of, uh, yeah, he didn't, he didn't yeah. carry a weapon with him. Yeah, that's right. That was based on a true story. Him. Yeah, It's yeah, a yeah. true story. But it's like I said, that's exactly how I felt. No kidding. Going in and out of five hospitals during that time. It's like, which do I, who can I save? Who can, who can we possibly help here? And I had the patients calling me. Can you see my dad? And I tell the ICU doc, I say, listen, I'm not here. I'm not a miracle worker. I'm not Jesus Christ. I said, let me look at the chart. Let me see the family. And then several times I had to go out to the waiting room and tell the family, 
everything's been done that can be done because frankly the guy was they're dying you know it was too <laughs> late for ivermectin but uh and but i didn't say it in such a way ever that you should sue the hospital be pissed off excuse me but you know i you know i wouldn't say that to them i wanted to bring them you know let them know that you know there's a reason for all this crazy behavior in hospitals, but I don't ever want them to get upset with the doctors uh, because these doctors were doing in their own hearts and minds what they really thought was the right thing. I didn't meet any doctor during that whole time that really thought they were killing patients. But I'm going to tell you what, the hospital systems, you have to think a little bit more seriously about with their policies. I think it's wise enough. Um, so thank you everyone for joining. We're going to move now to our GCP raw section for So for those of you who have, uh, signed up, we will move into a couple more deeper questions here with Dr. John Littell. Otherwise, please like, and share, and we will see y'all next time. This concludes the free portion of the gut check project for full access to the raw interviews. Just visit gutcheckproject.com. Click the GCP raw circle and use code hero for a free month plus all of the access with being a supporter of the Gut Check Project. Please share this episode with your friends and thank you for being a part of the Gut Check Project.